if Kevin McCarthy has the gavel in the future, does anybody believe in any way, shape or form that they will not absolutely manipulate election results in 2024 if they do not go their way? That becomes a permanent situation. The House will never again see a Democratic majority. And I'm not inherently partisan. What I'm looking at right now is there is one party that is pro-democracy and one that is anti-democracy. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Since 2017, I've been following progressive political technology entrepreneurship, including talking to many of the key funders of it. Progressives have an ambivalence about big money in the political process, needing it and deploring it at the same time. So I was happy to get the chance to catch up to Tamar Mokhtar, who's been working hard to protect our democracy with money from Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, and others, through their group Investing in Us, which is an innovation fund for American democracy and the rule of law. This is not Tamer's first time on the show, so we didn't talk much about his biography, but rather got into his views about our current politics and how he evaluates the work of Investing in Us and their portfolio enterprises. We discussed what worked and what didn't. Tamer also talked about their upcoming podcast, which will feature the people and the work they helped fund. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Tamer Mokhtar. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So Tamar, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a really brief biography since you're coming back to the show? Sure. Um, Tamar Mokhtar, I am a partner at Investing in Us and the founder and executive director of All Americans Vote. I jumped into uh, the world of uh, full-time political activism, if you will, about four years ago, leaving a private career of 25 years once the, the threat of Trumpism seemed like something that could really last, which unfortunately it seems like it is. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did that. And talk a little bit about investing in us. I mean, I know from previous interviews with you and co-founder Dmitri that you raised money from Reed Hoffman and a network of other principals, uh, quite a lot in excess of a hundred million dollars and work to fund groups that uh, were defending the democracy and in certain cases promoting the Democratic Party with technology and other things, civic engagement. We're now into a new election cycle. When I last spoke with Dimitri, he said he really hoped not to be doing any of this anymore post-January 20th. 
I don't know where you are on that. Where are you? They're very much the same. Yeah. So he and I, like, we were, we're shoulder to shoulder and all this for a while. And it was, I think it was on January 6th, he and I were on the phone walking our dogs. I'm in Richmond, Virginia. He's in Northern Virginia. And just talking, right, in the morning of January 6th. And just to refresh, <laughs> prior to all hell breaking loose, uh, we were on the cusp of a power shift, a complete, you know, sort of once in a generation power shift in the United States Senate. House of Representatives and the White House. And it was moments before John Ossoff's uh, victory was announced or moments after, I can't remember the exact chronology that, you know, the insurrection materialized in significant ways. And so before that, he and I were literally, I was walking my dog, he was walking his, we were just chatting like, oh my God, I can't believe like what has actually come around. We definitely threw a couple of rocks in the lake, left some, some ripples. We did some good things. Uh, we've never claimed big, broad credit, but we were really, really glad that the fight, we have felt like the fight was pretty much over, that the, the the battles have been waged and we could now execute on the plan of just shutting it all down and slinking back into our private lives away from the world of politics, et cetera, sort of wash that off of us. And then the insurrection happened. And literally an hour later, we're back on the phone like, holy shit, I think there's a lot more that we think we need to be doing. We went from winding it all down, breathing deeply to we can't go anywhere yet. Like we got on the phone with Reed, we started talking about all these things. We started recognizing once again, the one thing that we didn't anticipate, sort of the worst case scenario that uh, we, we hadn't considered was happening right in front of us. And it was clear that we were nowhere near. Uh, we hadn't retreated from the precipice at all. Our toes were still dangling off the edge. And the last thing I'll say about that was we had been accused of uh, of uh, dealing in doomsday porn with the terms that were brought before us in the years and more acutely in the summer leading up to the election. We started talking about this idea that Trump may not relinquish power. And we started planning for the interregnum and we started mobilizing and organizing organizations and people to act on plan B, C, D and E based on however the election went. People were scoffing at us for an awful long time. And this was the worst kind of vindication of our foresight in that regard that this type of thing happened. And as a result, we're still trying to figure out whether or not there's something we can do to continue to help. I guess I share your view that the toes are over the edge of the cliff. I'm watching the ongoing efforts to overturn the election still going forward with what's going on in Arizona to quote unquote audit the various state legislatures that are trying to make sure that maybe uh, in the next election that they can overturn results the you know the changing of the rules to benefit the trump side the continued renovation of the republican party into a vehicle for one guy the speeches and other things that trump is making saying he's not gone and he's very proud of the influence he wields and wants another crack at it. And we live in a two-party system where if you get the nomination, you got a pretty good shot at winning. And here's a guy, he still seems to have control of that party and probably could pick the nomination up again uh, without that much effort. And they're working on on uh, messaging to to get it back. I'm worried. I don't think we're done with it. I think, and governing is so hard, responsible governing, the governing that 
the Biden administration is doing, I think, moving down the right road on a lot of fronts, but so hard to get things through with the Senate as it is. You said you're thinking about ways to try to make a difference. What kind of thinking are you doing and and what possibilities are there? Yeah. So you brought up a lot there. And let me just say, I mean, there's a couple of different steps in what you talked about that um, I think it's important that people recognize that the picture is probably more bleak than we realize. And, uh, you know, again, I'm the guy or I'm one of the guys that was viewed as sort of a chicken little, but just recognize what they've told us. So I'll start from the last thing you said in terms of governing being very, very difficult and come back a little bit. So Mitch McConnell is not being discreet. He's not sending signals. He's not waving his hands. He's not speaking in code. He has said his priority is to stop the Biden administration. So governing is not just hard. Under the current structure, it will be impossible to pass any kind of significant legislation, period. That's just the way it is. He has said that. Believe him when he tells you that. He did the same thing with Barack Obama, but for the fact that the ACA was passed through you know, the reconciliation process, that would have never seen the light of day either. So this is not new. The difference is it's more brazen now. Again, diplomats and, and politicians often speak in code, but there's nothing to interpret here. He's telling it to us in plain English, in public, for all of us to consume. So that's one thing in terms of governing being difficult. Secondly, in terms of still being on the precipice and Trump grabbing the nomination again or whoever it may be, the biggest threat that I see right now is that let's assume the hypothetical that Nancy Pelosi was not the Speaker of the House on January 6th. Let's assume that Republicans had seized control of the House and Kevin McCarthy had the gavel. They have showed us once again, without any kind of symbolism or code, that Donald Trump would be the sitting president today had they the gavel. They would have absolutely overturned. They voted to overturn. They voted not to certify. They will have very easily found a way to manipulate and overturn the election results. That's what they are telling us. This is not a, again, there's no symbolism here. They're giving it to us in plain English. The big threat, again, as I see it, is in 22, the odds of us winning the House are you know, it varies, but some of the betting markets show us a one in three chance of holding the house, which may be considered generous to some. But the reason it's so important is because if Kevin McCarthy has the gavel in the future, does anybody believe in any way, shape or form that they will not absolutely manipulate election results in 2024 if they do not go their way? And what happens then is the precedent is set. That becomes a permanent situation. The House will never again see a Democratic majority. And I'm not inherently partisan. What I'm looking at right now is there is one party that is pro-democracy and one that is anti-democracy. So you will have a permanent Republican majority in the House by virtue of the gerrymander. You'll have a permanent Republican in the White House, a permanent Trumpist in the White House, by virtue of manipulation of electoral results. And we may or may not stay at about a, at some level of parity in the Senate because, as we know, Senate elections are not subjected to influence of gerrymandering or the Electoral College. But the House and the White House are gone permanently if we do not hold the majority in 2022. Because once that genie is out of the bottle, forget about it. They've shown us time and again, they'll manipulate any kind of structural systems to ensure that they maintain power no matter what. So that is, for me, the holy shit, this is what we're facing reality. Now, how can we change it? That's the problem, Nathaniel. You know, I am 
rarely met by someone more pessimistic than me. (laughs) (laughs) I have to admit that the way you talked about the house would have overturned the electoral college. My hair stood on end on the top of my head. And I think it's very likely that you're right, even though that is just an appalling thing to consider. And, you know, maybe at the brink, we might have had some responsibility, but I don't know. The control that Trump seems to have over the minds of some of these people and just their natural inclination for power seeking that precedes him, uh, you put those things together, it's a witch's brew, you know? I think we may be giving Trump a little bit too much credit there as well. Like this has been symptomatic. This has been bubbling under the surface for generations. I've had conversation after conversation with people about the parallels that people have drawn between the resistance and the Tea Party movement. And I've heard uh, people like Charlie Sykes say, wait a minute, were all these crazy people here all along or did they just get inoculated with crazy? And And I'm like, of course they were here all along. This has always been the case. I reject out of hand the parallel between the Tea Party and the resistance movement to Trumpism because Let's go back to the origin of the Tea Party. The Tea Party was stood up three weeks into President Barack Obama's presidency. Three weeks. In three weeks, what could he have possibly done to ruin the country and to disassemble all of the structures that made America what it was? They were not protesting anything he had done. What they were protesting is who he was. It was at its very, very core, an attack on a person, on an image It was absolutely racialized. It was 100% motivated by those insidious, deep-seated American traditions. And they were venerated by the Republican Party. And they were viewed as the model. And they were held up as the standard bearers of what conservatism really was. So to hear people today, and God bless Charlie Sykes and Sarah Longwell and all these people that are really, really intelligent and thoughtful about the position we currently occupy in this country, but this is not new. This is an experience that I've had and everybody I know has had our entire conscious lives because that is what has been the battle. Everything was coded. Every smirking conversation I got into with a Republican that was anti-Obama, anti-ACA, there was just this seething undertone of racism and hatred within it that was impossible to ignore, but it was always deniable by them. And that's the thing that they know that has driven me out of my goddamn skull for so long. And that's one of the things that Trump manifests a lot. It's like he's skirting along the edges of illegality all the time by never saying the words you know, go kill that guy or go pay that stripper this hush money. Instead, he just sort of winks and nods and it's understandable, as, but he never says the actual words. And that's what Republicans have been doing to me and people like me and what is now a emerging majority of the country. They've been saying that to us and presenting us with that hostility our entire fucking lives. And it was given safe harbor and it was cloaked in political, economic, states' rights, all these ideologies 
And they've done it for so long. And it's been the type of thing that has been completely infuriating to me at every possible level. And what I've been doing for the last four years is tamping all of that down in the interest of intellectualizing strategy for the sake of survival, broader survival. So forgive my diatribe, but this is the emotion that I experience over and over and over again. And we see it constantly. It's there. And to, again, place too much credit in Trump's corner for this is to ignore the fact that dozens of millions of people believe in their core that America is falling apart and only the mentality of Trumpism and the uh, preservation of that power structure is going to save it. So given that, that mental bent that you bring to this, I take it that you want to stay in the game. How are you doing that? Do you have Reed Hoffman and other people still on board? Is Dimitri back on board? What's the plan? Are you going to continue to do RFPs for funding organizations? What are you going to do? Yeah, so want versus uh, feel obligated to are two very, very different things. They may be the same in practice, depending on what you do. Yeah, in practice, yeah, I get that. But I, I've been asked the question a hundred times once I sort of jumped into this, uh, whether or not I really enjoyed what I was doing. And the answer was absolutely not. I didn't even love what I was doing. It was incredibly necessary and I couldn't sleep without doing it. Like there was, no, there was no way I could not do it. It was 100% necessary. In many ways, it was, uh, it was uh, enriching and it was fulfilling because I was able to do a lot of things that were really, really important in terms of uh, elevating, promoting, supporting so many people that would otherwise be ignored. But it is exhausting and very, very difficult work um, and emotionally fraying, right? In terms of Reed behind me, like Reed is, um, is a unique character. Reed is 100% into the concept of elevating the human condition. And he has said no in certain terms, let's find ways to do that. And as long as we can continue to do that, we're in this together. He's categorized himself as a very active chairman of the board of Dimitri, the operation that Dimitri and I have been running for the last four years. I don't know though, whether or not it's a direct political game, because I think what we did, which was substantial, through agitation and collaboration, a mix of those two things, uh, was really elevated this idea of trying to, again, intellectualize and really go objectively into the best possible marginal plays that would provide the mo biggest or most outsized impacts. And we really kind of spread that gospel in some ways and, and made it to where that was happy to say many people adopted that. I'm not going to say we necessarily were the origins of it, but we certainly were proselytizers of that. Obviously, you with NGP Van, you helped to quantify so much of what was being done and systematize so much of what was being done. We tried to take that and, and do it in, in a new way. So whether or not we're able to, can, to still do that is something that we're assessing. So the answer is I don't know. It's a very, very long way of saying I, I don't really know what, like how, what the longevity is, what the, what the, what the future is for the, the work that we've been doing, whether or not we're going to still be involved. You've emphasized how tough it was to do this and fraying why so hard you know it seems like 
there are other funders. They are looking at proposals. They're making decisions. They're spending money. I understand that's there was a lot of them. Why was it so difficult? I mean, I think I'd be happy to step in and help you spend $100 million on good things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so at the most basic level, the volume of information and the scrutiny and the, um, the task of figuring out what fit our particular thesis and our particular investment thesis was not easy. Uh, Reed is a world-class venture investor. So to apply any level of scrutiny and, and, and pitch him, like my job was to canvas all of these things and then go to Reed and pitch him with it. Like it was never an automatic yes. And it did not yeah. matter the size. Were there a lot of no's? A lot, yeah, well, yeah, sure. But I mean, as I got, you know, as our thinking got more and more refined, and as we found sort of a, a nomenclature and a cadence with one another, that was, you know, as you learn one another a little bit, the no's became, uh, there became fewer and fewer no's just because I got better at figuring out the rhythm and, and making sure that things jived along before I elevated them. Right. So it was, it was learning that and learning Reed's way of thinking about things. And, and uh, I'm not saying this just to sort of, I don't need to ingratiate myself to Reed, but I will tell you, if there's a weakness, if I, if I were to go through a document or a proposal and I found 150 strong points and there was one weakness buried within, you know, three <laughs> sub C, he could sniff that out like, like incredibly, uh, like very quickly. Um, he's a smart guy. He's, he's a damn smart guy. Um, but so there, so there's that. The other difficulty was so much of this is, is wrapped in emotion. So much is, uh, you know, I, I, I talked about the idea that we invest using objective data uh, with a soul. Like this is, this is venture investing with a soul attached to it. The problem is over-indexing on the emotion. And with organizers and people of my community and people that do work that I did from the time I was a, a teenager, like the emotional aspect of it is so critically important, but it's also not enough to get you over the line. It's nowhere near enough. If you are relying so heavily on that, I have to push you, I have to push you, I have to push you. And that from my own people produces resentment. And I got, took a lot of sort of, you know, I took a lot of friendly fire and that's you, mean you, you have to be really intrusive to the organization that you're thinking about supporting because totally you're because of your principle and because of the principles under which you're operating. Yeah, that's exactly right. It has to, like I said, on some level or another, there has to be enough objective truth to complement what we intuitively feel about something. Here. And some things are pretty hard to show some that about. Are, as, some things are really hard to show that about. And then nobody likes to hear no. And I had to say no to a lot of people before I ever elevated it to read, before Dimitri and I even discussed, like there were a couple, we would always bounce things off of one another and we all, you know, but the point is to say no to somebody that was like putting their heart and soul into something. And, you know, somebody that, that's a tough thing to do. And and that became, that's difficult. It's inherently difficult. What do you think of the Mackenzie, the wife of Bezos, the philosophy of much fewer strings attached, a different sort of, model of investing in nonprofits, often minority led. Is there something to learn there for your operation? Yeah, it's really helpful to have almost unlimited funds. That's the first thing you can learn. (laughs) Uh, And I'm not criticizing her at all. God bless her. I, I think it's lovely, but we didn't have, you know, dozens of billions of dollars to play with for one. I don't object to the no strings attached philosophy. 
In fact, there's a hell of a lot of overlap with what we did. We didn't go into operational roles hardly at all with our organizations. We very, very rarely. It was more on the upfront evaluation. Totally. That's right. Yeah. And, it, you know, to pass muster, you were doing the right things already, thinking about things the right way, maybe a tweak here or there, and then, you know, sort of train your fire in this direction and we're all good. And then just come back to us. It was very much, again, it was early stage risk capital, take some money, do your thing, come back to us when you need more or when you have something to show us and we'll take it from there. The difference obviously is the shrunken down timeline. You know, in, in venture capital, you can go five, 10 years, 20 years before something really pays off. In this case, that's obviously not, 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 not the case. In the world of venture capital, when you make investments, it's rare that one makes it big. You know, most of the investments you make, even if you're a genius at it, don't pan out. Things are risky and you make mistakes and, and the operators make mistakes. From the perspective of the money that you guys put in last cycle, what would you say was the best investment that was made and maybe the worst? So you're right with the pretense. Um, in this case, when we evaluated at the end of, I think, 2018 and again, closer to the end of the whole cycle, it was basically 30-30-30. 30% of the things that we did were just completely unsuccessful. 30% of them had a null effect and 30% of them worked pretty well. Um, the very, very best in what we did, push black would be the success to which I would really point. I did talk to, um, forget the principal. Julian Walker, who's a new CEO, building out a massive list of, of people with whom they engaged long-term on their terms. It was really, really intelligent, direct marketing work. This was my, my universe before I came into politics where, you know, you engage somebody, you get them to come into the conversation, you keep them interested on their terms before you ever make an ask. And by the way, the interest level can be generated on things totally unrelated in this case to politics. So Push Black, the best example, I've, I feel like I've said this a hundred times, their highest engagement in, ter in terms of voter registration, voter turnout, uh, uh, surrogate metrics came off of an article that they published about okra and uh, black food and, and okra in the black community. So many people engaged on that and found that interesting and they were able to follow the stream through to a commitment or a voter registration or a commitment to vote or whatever it was. You said there's like a 30-30-30. What would be on the low end in the less successful category? Uh, yeah. So, you know. Everyone loves to talk about that. Yeah, exactly. But, it's, but I think it's an important, there's it important is. lessons in that also. Maybe for more sure. so. For sure. So there were mixed results, some of it based on execution. Like one of the things that I think shows still the most promise is this idea. I'm, I'm dancing around your question, by the way, and almost intentionally, but I'll get to I it. Can, I can almost perceive that. Yeah, you can almost perceive <laughs> it. Um, there was an execution failure in when we tried to scale uh, election day celebrations and poll parties and that type of thing. Yeah, um, like Civic Nation and some of those. Yeah, right, right. So, and what we learned from that was if you want to do big hoopla events where people are like, there's music and there's food and there's all this kind of fun, you probably should not be contracting with political organizers, right? <laughs> like uh, get somebody that throws parties to do that kind of thing. And scaling is difficult. You know, these are things that we knew and we learned again in full color, you know, in 2018. So that's an example of a learning, uh, something that did not come through the way that it could, 
the potential there is an incremental turnout increase of 4% because that's what was seen in pilots and that was seen in early sort of beta testing. Uh, it fell short in the execution on the scale, but it still is not something that we're ready to abandon because there's potential there. There's a lot of potential there. So those are the types of things that we learned. What else? I mean, a lot of people spent a lot of money on direct advertisements, doing things that felt right, doing things that seemed really, really strong that ended up having backlash. So for example, there was a, a really interesting um, series of ads that we tested in 2018. This is, this is a fun one in, in terms of how counterintuitive it was, where there were sort of like direct-to-camera testimonials where a army veteran speaks to, the, to other uh, army or other military personnel about the value of patriotism and pushing towards gains in 2018. And that produced a huge amount of backlash. Like who knew that a veteran speaking to other veterans would end up producing backlash towards Trumpism? Wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't. Yeah. The one that tested really well was the one that tested off the charts in 2018 was like a 50-year-old white woman talking about legalizing marijuana. You know, these are the kinds of things that we learned. And, and you know, the, the, one of the reasons that testing is so important, one of the reasons testing is so important, because you can just sink billions of dollars into a hole. The net effect of all political spending is basically zero. And that's a multi-billion dollar null effect. Although if you didn't spend and the other side did, you'd, you'd that's have right. an issue. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so one of the less successful things that came to my here was the the alloy experiment put a big chunk of money into a data play with good people i think and in a complicated political space and and uh, i know you were part of that i was you want to talk about what you think happened there yeah, super appreciative of you bringing that up. Um, but and I say that with a joke. I contest this idea I, of it not being. I just I bring it up out of real curiosity. No, no, seriously, yeah. it is. It's a great study, and it was not. And I will say this to till the day I go to the grave. It was not the failure that it has been picked out to be. Like for example, one thing that came out that was super productive because we had a lot of resources into it. Alloy was able to purchase massive swaths of very fresh cell phone data. Um, and go after voter registrations and, and individuals that would not have otherwise been touched. And not to get too wonky about this, but and you'll know this uh, between you know the very in the in the eleventh hour of voter registration, a lot of people sign up. So there's a spike. Anytime you have a deadline, there's a spike in activity. So there are a lot of people that register in the eleventh hour. Alloy was able to reach several million people that would not have been reached at all to register in that eleventh hour. The catch-22 there, however, with the G once, once organizations shift from voter registration to get out the vote, is that so many of the new registrants are so new that they don't get into the files for GOTV outreach. So they're kind of caught in this black hole where there's not enough time to get to them. Alloy was resourced and nimble enough, and this is one of the things that I worked through with the team there. Uh, to stand up their own GOTV push with these, this big, unique data set that was not getting into the hands of people that were doing GOTV. So they were able to reach, uh, I believe, if my memory serves, between one and a half to two million newly registered voters in swing states that were otherwise getting zero GOTV outreach. So that in and of itself, at the very end of the entirety of the cycle, at the very end of Alloy's 
existence really was an incremental was it was an it was a contribution to the cause that was really really valuable now that sta- I had to state that because it's a truth that is largely unspoken in terms of why it fell short boy there are a lot of politics and politics and that is not an excuse <laughs> there were shortcomings here and there but there was and I understand why there's so much skepticism around the ownership and use future use of the data that was going to be collected and uh, whether it was um, self-interested or uh, a bias in terms of the view or authentic uh, protection of data sets, what we saw was a, a large scale unwillingness to believe that what Alloy was offering was in fact going to be used for that purpose. And that, you know, Reed Hoffman or somebody else out of Silicon Valley wasn't going to monetize that data set and manipulate it for their personal gain in the future. Like the, all that stuff was real. All that stuff existed. And overcoming that, by the way, with 50 different state parties, 50 different state party leads, the national party, the independent organizations, the C3s, the C4s, like that was a lot to try to overcome. And we were unable to overcome that in time to make it live up to its actual potential. Would you say it was the politics that led you to kind of give up on it as a viable route? Uh, Or is it something you would tackle again in a different way? Uh, I don't know that I would personally want to tackle that again. (laughs) I don't. And by the way, giving up on it is uh, an improper framing. Like it was always designed, just like investing in us. It was designed to essentially sunset at the end of this election cycle. Uh, with the idea of a handover of massive uh, amounts of data and new utilities and learnings, et cetera. It was not designed. A handover to, to whom? Well, to whoever could use it best, like the, whether it was the DNC or, you know, a different organization. Jeremy Smith over at Civitech runs one hell of a smart shop. that is he, capable And he of, picked up the assets of it, right? He did pick up the assets of it. And that was uh, probably best case scenario and one that I'm very, very pleased with. Jeremy is an innovator. You know, he's done everything by sheer will and creative intellect uh, from massive ballot curing operations to uh, finding unregistered voters by virtue of thousands and thousands of FOIA requests across the country with a volunteer army of grandmothers in a big warehouse in Texas somewhere. Like the guy is the definition of like a creative entrepreneur. Um, I like Jeremy. Yeah, yeah he's, he's an incredible guy. This four year run that you've had, you've had like a real window, an intensely observed window into the progressive ecosystem. When you think about what you've seen there, the way we're organized and the strengths and the weaknesses of the team, what are the general things that you observe? You know, it was cool to, when I first came into this and Dimitri and I were really kind of running through it all to see how many really, really impressive and intelligent people were you know, sort of putting their shoulders to the wheel on this. It's kind right. of endless. It's endless. And the joke I tell all the time, and I know you're, you're, you're an Ivy grad as well, but at one point there was just this never ending stream of Yale law school graduates that I was interfacing with. And the joke I told Dimitri at some point was, I mean, Jesus, it, it, clearly Yale law school had an open admissions policy for about 10 years there. Cause I couldn't swing a dead cat with that and five people with Yale law degrees. 
it speaks a little bit. And I'm not beholden necessarily to people's academic pedigrees, but it is an interesting indicator of the type of people with whom you're working. And these are folks that left behind their careers and started their own things. And it was, you know, it was peppered with just one person was more impressive than the next. So the intellectual horsepower is definitely a strength, I think, not to mention sort of the the motivation behind, especially the new entrance into the field. And plenty of plenty of horsepower, not in the IVs. Yeah, I'm not from the IV, and I like to think that I've got a little bit to offer. So, um, <laughs> but like I said, it, it's it was it was it was just damn impressive. The pe- I, I met one impressive person after the next. Many of them did much the same thing I did by virtue of like not being a legacy political operator, but trying to see if they couldn't help in some kind of way. So that strength is is undeniable. Um, so they're just remarkable, remarkable people. You've spoken with a number of them, the Dewana Thompsons of the world. Like they're just amazing, amazing people in the space. The weakness is, you know, like any other industry, there are grifters and there are self-interested, you know, there are rent seekers. There are all these people that have found ways to monetize things and lose sight in some way, shape or form of what the actual mission is. And, and the reason it is exacerbated and, uh, you know, I find myself more passionate about it is because the stakes are higher. You know, in any other private world, if I was working on a thing with a client to do a thing and somebody was, you know, extracting a little bit too much out of it, that sucks. And you try and remedy it. But at the end of the day, no babies or puppies are going to die because somebody lined their pockets doing something slightly dishonest around whatever the marketing program was. In this case, that is not true. (laughs) Right. Like there are people that will work you know, in inefficient ways, knowing better, knowing damn well that what they're doing is not going to achieve the goal. And the ultimate goal is, you know, not have kids separated from their parents at the border, for God's sake. That's fairly unforgivable. Right. Right. Is there a particular category? What, who are you thinking of? I I think the easiest example is like um, so many of the mail shops, So the slightly long version of this is when you go into a local election, like a state legislature level uh, election or campaign, you will find volunteers running those campaigns. You will find young people running those campaigns, people that are not necessarily seasoned, don't really know the industry. What ends up happening is you've got a lot of consultants that will come in and take advantage of that situation. And they will be very, very slick and very intelligent in their presentation. And they will sell one of these people on this idea of, you know, like glossy mailers, for example, we have all the evidence in the world. Now in 2017, the evidence showed that four pieces of mail were, was a threshold beyond which you see diminishing returns. Uh, we tested a little bit further with people like, uh, mind the gap and others where we hadn't quite reached the, the full threshold of saturation yet. And it may be five, maybe six pieces of mail still provides, a, a, an impact. But to sell a young campaign manager on 22 glossy pieces of expensive mail, knowing damn well that you're seeing no impact beyond, let's say, the sixth, but you're still going to sell them on 22, 23, 24 of those because you have a lake house that you want to buy, right? That's a problem. Would you think there's something analogous in digital or uh, media TV. You'll find it. Yeah, yeah. I think you'll find it everywhere. I didn't come. Yeah. So we dealt with some really smart, really honest people in, in digital and in media, thankfully, like the Tara McGowan's of the world that knew their knew what was what operated honestly and went about, you know, doing God's work, so to speak. That is a very tangible example that I can give you that we saw all over the place. 
you mentioned to me in an email before this interview that you are planning to launch a podcast. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. So we're, we've been in pre-production now for a couple of months um, where we're talking about what we've learned um, and who did what and what was smart, what was tough. A lot of what we're talking about now, but this is more specific to our investment portfolio on some level and really trying to leave behind an artifact of so much of what you've asked only in the first person, whereby I'm going to be pulling those anecdotes and those stories and, and, and layering them together from uh, those individuals. So a lot of it, we're calling it in the fight. And it's a matter of the people like you and I and so many of the others that saw the threat for what it was and did something very, very different beyond the traditional methodology that we discuss all the time that drove so much of us mad and led us to the uh, catastrophe that we were all facing four years ago and still face today. So how are you going to structure that? You're going to talk to the principles, overlay that with commentary? Is it going to be a story? What's the form? Yeah, sort of all of the above. So uh, I have this wonderful producer by the name of Rose Reed that has several different uh, layered approaches to different uh, episodes. It's going to be a limited run, but the idea here is to introduce, let's say, um, founders and principal actors to some of the academicians that laid some of the foundation behind what we acted upon, what we invested in. Reed is going to play a part in it. He's going to be discussing sort of his purview, and there will be a, a fair bit of Dimitri and I doing post-game analysis of some of the conversations that were recorded. So is this sort of uh legacy protection podcast uh, wow that's a no i you know what i could see why it would be thought of that way and um i suppose it will serve that purpose uh, look i'm not going to shit all over myself during this thing i can <laughs> promise you that but it is more if if protecting of the legacy means making sure that some of the intelligence stuff that was underappreciated uh gets amplified then yeah that that, that is certainly what it is but that wasn't the, the the goal. It wasn't our legacy, so to speak. And it, it wasn't self-serving in that way. At least I'd like to think it wasn't. So does this mean that you feel that my podcast was insufficient? Pure crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I listened to dozens of episodes of what you did and, um, and what you have been doing. I Clearly, I'm here. I think it's been fantastic and helpful um, because you did exactly what we we're trying to do only – in hindsight, like you are promoting people like Dewana and Luis Miranda at the Hispanic Federation and those types of folks that uh, were really, really good at what they did. We are indebted to you for providing that service. And hopefully this will help uh, add to that. So I've never had a, uh, a producer to work with. What have you learned from that What that you can advise me? About oh, yeah, I, so my, my advice to you would be to talk to Rose. Um, we have maybe I will. There's a lot of work. Like yeah. I, uh, it's it's a lot of planning. Um, it is very systematic. There's an art and a science to this, right? Like and and it's been impressive to me and daunting the amount of work that has gone into pre-planning. You know, a, a run of twelve to twenty episodes and and laying it out and some of the jargon and everything else has been pretty interesting too. When you say twelve to twenty episodes, are you going to arrange it by sort of different 
areas that you invested in? What's the organizational structure? Yeah, it, it's not exactly that way. Like what we did, as you can imagine, with a blank sheet of paper was sort of go, who would be interesting? What do we need to cover? Should we go chronologically? Like we, we went through a debate exactly how to do all of this. And then when we threw all of those ingredients into the mix, we kind of let Rose add structure to it. And what she has is, you know, what she calls is beats per episode, the types of different things that we want to get from each person. And then, you know, as long as that structure is there, the, the rounding out and the conversation and however it zigs and zags and goes is great. So she has like the first four or five episodes, the, the pilot run is like four or five episodes. And she's got exactly the way she wants it to flow with the idea of what the next uh, five to 15 episodes are going to gonna be like with uh, sort of your wish list of, of guests. And then, yeah, so it kind of, she, she's been, it's been impressive to see the amount of thought that goes into this and the way that it's structured. It strikes me that that could be a mechanism for read to listen to and participate in and maybe get hooked into uh, doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I am not lobbying Reed to, you know, spend another several dozen million dollars on anything. Like, I'm, I'm, we're all indebted to him for being as committed as he had been. We came up with this idea with him. Like he really drove this and was talking about this idea that we cannot just, when we talked about something, like we thought about this before a long time, you know, a year ago is when we started these conversations. Um, and the concept at that time was we're going to be done in January, but it would be irresponsible of us to have come in and done this much and disrupted as much as we did and sort of, uh, you know, thrown as many elbows as we have without leaving behind something that people can take and either ball up and throw in the trash or take notes from and, and apply. So this was that artifact. Um, this is sort of a, a verbal uh, sort of uh, leave behind analysis of what was done. Reed's one of a fair number of very wealthy people on the right side, right? The, the good are good billionaires, as I see it. What else do you see happening in that arena as we go forward to 2022 and 2024? Are you aware of anything that I can get excited about or, or people can derive some help from? Because the other side certainly has their bad billionaires, yeah, I'm going to disappoint you in this one with my sort of pessimistic view again, right? The problem is trying to get the level of energy that emerged as a result of, you know, the avatar that was Donald Trump to try and replicate that energy, that resource allocation, uh, that level of investment and involvement is going to be difficult without the actual physical, you know, pantomime villain there. So that's what makes it tough. And you're already seeing a lot that of people saying, is still there as are many others. That's the challenge is convincing people, you know, where we began this conversation. And that is, you know, we're still sort of teetering. Um, so that's, that, that is part of where we're spending our time and energy right now. Like Biden is doing a hell of a job and to convince people that, you know, now is the time to put more fuel in the tank. Now is the time to really sort of, you know, gun the engine as you go into the curve. You don't hit the brake. You know what I mean? That's that that's difficult. And that's part of what we're trying to do. I'm worried that we're relaxing because heck, I'm relaxing to, and not following the government as tightly in some regards because I know it's in better hands. Yeah. But yep. but I but on the campaign front, man. Do you know a, I, I use this metaphor a lot. In in twenty eighteen, we won 
by the slimmest of margins, right? In spite of everything we did. And it's the metaphor is you ran a race, you won it, but the guy that came in second broke the world record that existed before that race was run, right? Like we only won because we were, it was like an insane, all hands on deck, every dollar, every, every. Yeah. And if we let down our guard, we're going to, we're going to get outraced because as much as we are a good team, the other team has a lot of people supporting them and some nefarious practices. Totally. It's such an honor to talk to you again. I really enjoy hearing your take on things. Is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't? Uh, no, I think you covered, <laughs> you covered a lot. The alloy question, I wish you hadn't asked. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't think so. There's no shame in, in trying things. And I do like this closing question of yours. I, and I, I don't remember the last time I heard somebody actually give you a thoughtful response to it. And I wish I had prepared for that. Um, I, I've no. had a few. Yes, yeah. for sure. Uh, well, okay. Thanks. Thanks again. Yep. Uh, anything else you want to say? Uh, no, not for, for the, for the record. That was Tamar Mokhtar. Tamar's at investingin.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.